0: on me this week that uh, not exactly racing through in this book, and then dawned on me that that's not the goal. And so I said, "Yeah, right." So today we're uh, we're going to touch on three past three verses that we talked about last week, and really probably get to only one new verse, I think. But that's okay. Um, I'm going to take you through various correlative passages, as they're called, passages from both Old and New Testaments that further either further elucidate our particular text that we're in this morning, or they underscore the point that is being made, or at least that I'm trying to make from the Scripture. And all of that is by way of, again, not simply um, sort of spoon-feeding you the word truth, but also demonstrating on a weekly basis how properly to unravel the Word of God, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. So in that vein, I'm going to start with the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that he had done and taught, all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. There were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. Now, as I was beginning my thoughts on this whole message this week, I was tempted to begin by saying something like, You know, the difference between Jesus and me is. And then I thought. That kind of implies that there's only one difference between Jesus and me. And I said, yeah, no, I really don't want to say that. And so I modified it in my thinking. And I said, rather, of the billions of differences between Jesus and me, the one that I am most keenly aware of, and the one that pops up, I think, in my life more often than not, is that Jesus always had a heart of compassion. All the time, even at the worst times. Think of it for a minute. There's Jesus hanging on a cross. I don't race by that too quickly. The cross was not simply a means of execution. The Romans had all kinds of ways to kill somebody that were much faster, much quicker, much less trouble. So the cross isn't simply a mechanism of execution. It is a mechanism by design of torture. A gruesome, slow, prolonged, painful death. And there is the Son of God hanging on the cross and all that that means. And he looks down, and somewhere again in this whole ordeal, in the process of Jesus dying, he looks down and he beholds his mother and he beholds John. And he has the presence of mind and the compassion of his being to tell John to look after his mother. Jesus, on the other hand, had no difficulty owning his humanity. As we read the accounts of his life that were given in the Scriptures, Jesus is not unaware of his human frailties. And by that, I don't mean frailties in the area of the potential for him to succumb to temptation or sin. Jesus, the doctrine of impeccability, says that he was beyond that because he was fully God. No, rather I'm speaking of his human frailties like the need for sustenance, the need for shelter, the need for physical and emotional and even spiritual rest. Nor did he ignore them. But people who have given their lives to the Lord rarely have difficulty seeing Jesus as Fully God, which is why we're not really taken aback when Jesus defies rules for the animal kingdom by commanding the fish and bringing them over to the nets that were already bursting, why he defies rules for the weather as he commands violent winds and raging seas like a little puppy. We're not taken aback when he defies rules for physiology and genetics, healing a man born blind or somebody born deaf. We're not all that surprised when Jesus defies rules for life and death as he raises one person after another from the dead and defies rules for the generally unseen realm of the demonic that circle the globe and he shuts them up with a word, casting them aside like a used tissue. No. The bigger challenge to the Christ follower is not disbelief in a divine Savior, but a human one. We recognize, we repeat... We teach Jesus was fully God and he was also fully man. But the reality of the fully man part is uncomfortable to grasp if we really think about what that means. That's why I've always appreciated the writings of Max Lucato and his ponderings about Jesus growing up as fully God and yet fully man. And in that fully man part of who Jesus was as a child, There's no reason to think that Jesus didn't burp at the table. Or that he didn't have other emissions. Or that he may not have, you know, necessarily not have turned his nose up at lentils or broccoli. And Jesus didn't deny his humanity. Or ignore it, as I said. In Matthew 14... We read that after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountains by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. In Luke 5, Luke tells us that news about Jesus was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself, he tells us, would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And then again, I think, that I've been repeating this nearly every message thus far that we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And it's what Mark leads with in the very opening chapter of this Gospel. Let me read that from Mark chapter 1, verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, the disciples began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases. And he cast out many demons and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went away to a secluded place and he was there praying. And Simon and his companions searched for him and they found him. And they said to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Let us go somewhere else. Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. See, if Jesus is keenly aware now of the challenges of being human personally, certainly he's even more so for those around him, like the disciples. And so we are with the twelve, are back after spending time out in the mission field, which by the way, there isn't a lot of detail given to us to know where they were, but everything points that they were probably in the whereabouts surrounding their immediate area, their local environs. And yet Jesus sees a toil of ministry on their faces. And being the good shepherd he is, he tells them that they need a break. They need some time to replenish their own energy reserves, and that's not self-centered. But that is for the sake of the mission. Now, in my translation, the New American Standard Bible, which is what I use when I'm preaching, the phrase translated is that they didn't have time to eat. But the verb encompasses a much broader semantic range that means something more likely that they didn't have opportunity for what we might call leisure time. That is just time off, time to take care of bona fide necessities of life and health. And so in reality, not only did they not have time to eat, they didn't have time to physically unwind. They didn't have time to tend to their legitimate personal needs, physical or otherwise. And so you get the feeling that ministry can be all-consuming, and that is a reality that even Emmanuel had to deal with in the reality of his own humanity. I said it last week, and I'm pretty sure I've said it before, that taking time for one's self to stay physically, spiritually, and emotionally fit is a godly attribute. So kick guilt to the ground when you say no. Well, in Mark's account now, Jesus takes the gang of 12 to get away from it all, only to wind up back in the thick of it all. And so there's Jesus, he's in the boat, they're specifically going away, we're told to get away from the crowds, and they pull up to shore with the twelve, only to be greeted by the massive crowds that they were trying to escape. Now, I suppose that some, perhaps even many, maybe everybody, I don't know, chooses to see Jesus here with a big grin on his face, turning to the disciples and saying something like, oh look, the Father's laying the mission field right in our laps, woohoo! That may be correct. That may be. And what I'm about to say may not be inspired. And what I'm about to say may be unsettling. But it goes right back to what I said just a few minutes ago. Namely, the bigger challenge to the Christ follower is not disbelief in a supernatural divine Savior, but doubt in a human one. It doesn't seem unreasonable to think that coming in view of shore seeing, again, the very crowds that they were trying to get away from, Jesus' initial humanly thought may have been closer to, really? <laughs> for the love. Oh yeah, for the love. Which is exactly what carries us through the narrative, which is Mark. why Mark writes in verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, He saw a large crowd, and I'll insert parenthetically, and instead of shouting, Really? He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Now, there's an important caveat here that I cannot underscore enough. Remember what Mark records from the beginning of this book and onward about Jesus and the crowds and what Jesus himself said, I will repeat it yet again, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may proclaim or preach in some translations, the verb is keruxo, which is preach or proclaim there also, for that is why I came I came to preach, to proclaim and we can't forget the context of that comment the crowds were unrelentingly pressing upon Jesus to heal their sick They were unrelentingly pursuing Him and pressing upon Him to cast out their demons, to make the blind see, and to give the deaf their hearing back. And in the Savior's compassionate divinity, He worked miracles. Why? Most Christians, I believe, through the ages seemed to opine that it was to validate or rather it was to prove who Jesus was now that is for sure a very small part of why Jesus did miracles but Jesus never needed to prove who he was let's think about this the first person to demand that he prove who he is was who? satan in the wilderness and satan to paraphrase basically says to jesus i'm going to give you three chances to prove that you are god if you are the son of god if you are the son of god dude, if you are the son of god and jesus in my mind basically says to the first to the second and to the third now that's not very theologically rigid Jesus had no intention, answering him by scripture, had no intention of jumping through some hoop to prove who he was. He didn't need to. What about Pontius Pilate? Pilate just about begged Jesus to give him reason to know that he was who he said he was, so he could let him free. And what Jesus do? He declined. Luke tells us that Herod was actually glad to finally meet Jesus. And why in Luke 23? He says, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length. But Jesus answered him and did nothing. And then we have Jesus again back at the cross in that horrid mechanism of execution The crowd is milling around, the crowd that voted for him to be crucified, to be up on that cross. And those seeing him on the cross, Matthew records, If you are the Son of God, they shout derisively, then come down from the cross. And the chief priests are also there. And they see him and they exclaim, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the King of Israel then let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Now, Jesus didn't do miracles primarily to prove who he was. I like what Tim Keller writes in his excellent book, The Reason for God. Keller writes, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want Amen. Think about that. The miracles are not just only a challenge to our mind, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. But it's not here, and it's not now, and it's not yet. So, first things first. And the first thing is that keruxo, that proclamation, that preaching that makes the promise of heaven on earth that which we all desire possible. What history bears out, and we've seen it in our generation through so-called revival after revival after revival, and I'm thinking of the Toronto Revival and the Brownsville Revival, to name two of the most recent and the biggest and the most famous. What history bears out is that the natural man who gets a taste of the miraculous often doesn't want to be bothered with the first and Jesus knows this which just may be an answer to why, just may not that it is but this just may be an answer to why we don't see many more miracles today than we do back to Mark chapter 1 it's demonstrated there so the disciples realize Jesus is missing and they search for him and they frantically find him again and they exclaim to Jesus, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Of course they were. Why were they looking for him? The text told us. Because he'd been rebuking demons, he'd been healing disease, he'd been feeding the hungry, he'd been raising the dead. And Jesus' reply to them is. Well, by all means, let's do more. No, Jesus' reply is, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may proclaim there also, for that is what I came for. And what is the proclamation to which Jesus is referring? I can tell you what it's not. It's not about your best life now. Let's read the proclamation. Could have chosen any number of passages, but I'm going to Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 32. You'll only have the tail end of it up on the wall. And we preach and proclaim to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus as it as it is written, as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead. No longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Rose, he's quoting Old Testament here, this is Paul, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Now here it is. Therefore, in light of what I have just spelled out for you in the age of days gone past from the Old Testament. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed, freed through the law of Moses. He's speaking, obviously, to a very Jewish audience. The defining... Context in Mark's gospel right out of the gate in chapter 1 is Jesus has been working miracle after miracle casting out demons and then silencing them why? because they knew who he was and Jesus didn't want their advertising advertising what? he didn't want their advertising that the miracle working magic man had come because that is what people were being drawn to the God of gifts The gifts while denying the gift giver. I made the point last week, follow the logic here, that our current cultural view of the church, unfortunately, has both morphed over time, seeing it as just another social service organization that should be devoid of of religious intent in other words as long as this thing called the church gives me the goods whatever that is when I express my demand whatever that might be and keeps its religious judgmentalism to itself meaning proclamation of scriptural doctrine we'll get along just fine I'll embrace the church I'd be happy to welcome the church in my community. Bring in more churches. It's a common theme. Because in the words of Jeremiah, the heart is desperately corrupt. What happened when Jesus healed ten lepers? A disease that meant sure death, incurable, and not only that, it affected you from the day you were diagnosed because you now had to get away from everybody else and live with other lepers so as not to infect more people. Jesus heals ten of them, and only one returns to thank Jesus. And even Jesus seems taken aback. You see, for many, faith is the coin you put into a vending machine God, obligating him to dispense your election. People crave a vending machine God, and they crave a good news message filled with party poppers, helium balloons, and unlimited wishes. And if they expect that of Christ, and they do, they will most certainly Body of Christ on earth. Let's the church. Affirm me. Lavish things upon me. Pile upon me, feel good. Tell me I'm A okay. Just do not tell me to repent. For the very command assumes moral authority. But in my world, everyone is their own moral authority and can do what is right in their own eyes, expecting, yea, demanding the blessing of heaven. So there's Jesus and the twelve, and they pull up to shore. Mark tells us that Jesus sees them as helpless people, wandering aimlessly, without bearing, without hope, without future, and in the language of the day, from the depths of Jesus' intestines, feelings of compassion, concern, and love. little side note, you probably care less about The term in the Koine is squat one. We talk about feeling stuff in the depths of our heart. Oh, I heart you. Okay? I heart you, okay? We do that as the seat of our emotions. In that day, they would say, I don't know how to do that. I small bowel and large bowel you. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you forget it. They wouldn't have an emoji for that. That there were thousands of people gathered. Yeah, thousands. Can you imagine what the level of physical need was in a crowd that large? But Mark, or actually better, the Holy Spirit, through Mark, tells us in just four words what Jesus did. In compassion, Jesus began to. Last week I talked about this thing called mission creep and the church, and how the main thing often gets lost in a myriad of good but lesser things. In this text, Jesus by example helps us stay focused on the main thing if we let him. In a crowd of thousands who had gathered, they heard about the mission of the twelve and what they had done and what they were doing and of jesus and all that he was doing and there doubtless had to be hundreds who were in the midst of dire situations of life and yet jesus settles them down and what's he do he takes them to school Lucy Van Pelt he would set up shop and he'd say oh yeah the doctor's in the doctor's real and come on and bring your afflicted forward bring your needs whatever they are bring your demands Let the God of wishes and dreams and uniforms. no Jesus sat them down and he began all we have to do is look at the book of Acts again and the patterns that we see there duplicated over and over by the disciples of Jesus and one thing emerges. What was the topic of the day in school? Acts chapter 2 beginning verse 22 Men of Israel listen to these words Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power." those followers of Jesus, who were the result of his direct preparation for ministry, fought the urge of Mission Creep to take them or others off the path. And yet, even with that, the church still wandered, which we understand from the letters of the apostles explaining and warning and correcting and admonishing those who presented any kind of alternative truths from what they had received from Jesus and his proclamation. Or before a multitude from all walks of life and faith and perceived need and he begins to teach them. Now again, understand, Jesus was not unconcerned or oblivious to the physical needs of those who were near him as we will see next week. But that was not the first order of business unless And it was never the first order of business unless it served to explain the greater truth of Jesus' mission. I'm thinking here specifically of the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof of the house in which Jesus was proclaiming In Jesus was there at Simon Peter's house, you remember, in the first opening chapters here of the book of Mark, and he was there to proclaim the gospel. But then there's this, you talk about an obtrusion, you talk about an interruption, guys are up on the roof and they dig a hole in the grass roof to, in order to let down a paralytic so that he was right smack dab in front of Jesus so Jesus couldn't overlook him. And Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, pause, drum roll. He says to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Say what? I hear the guys on the roof. Say what? His sins are forgiven. We want him healed. That's the need, Jesus. We want him healed. And Jesus knows exactly what they want. But if Jesus if Jesus heals him, his obvious Let's say now he goes on those new legs and he goes walking out of that house and he gets trampled by a horse running out of control by, and he's killed. He now enters a Christless eternity. Separated from But, of course, nobody can tell that I just forgave your sins. It's nothing you can see. And so in order, and here's my point, the purpose of the miracle is not for the sake of healing the paralytic. Oh, yeah, there is a point of compassion into that. But specifically in the in the, the, the text inspired by the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the miracle is to validate, Jesus tells us, is so that you will know that I have the power, the authority Proclamation of why Jesus was there. Nobody can accuse Jesus of being discompassionate. And we're told, and you read through the Gospels this next year as you're doing so, note the number of times when Jesus was in a town, gathers a a crowd, of course, the crowd is still wanting more, 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 more. The need always outstrips the ability to meet the need. And Jesus, in the midst of them all, gets up to dump. That's it, I'm done. And he leaves them to go somewhere else. Leaving all those people he could have healed still in their, in their ailments, in their affliction. Because Jesus kept the first thing the first thing just recently, I was trying, I, I, I can't remember where I saw it, it was just in the last couple of weeks, but there was a cartoon, you know, like, a, like a, a, a newspaper cartoon. And it of course was meant as a big, you know, humorous jab at Christianity and at Christian missions. And there in this cartoon is standing a an obvious native an indigenous persons, so don't want to offend anybody, but a native by the way, they were dressed. You knew they were native and a rather thin person and everything else. And standing in front of him is a guy who's obviously a missionary holding a Bible that clearly says B-I-B-L-E on this book. And he's presenting this Bible to the native. And the caption underneath is something to the effect of, golly, that looks delicious. Meaning, here I am, hungering. I'm starving. And you come to me and you give me a book. And when I was out in the public, meaning out going to secular meetings and school meetings and city hall meetings and everything else and writing for the newspapers and getting letters to the editor, I can't tell you how many times that absurd accusation was thrown in my face. Oh, yeah, of course, that's all we do. We go down to Haiti every year, a couple times a year, sometimes three times a year and everything else. And we just go down there and we see all these people that are afflicted by all these diseases and everything else and we go, hey, wow, ooh, that looks nasty. Here, be warmed and filled. Next person. Couldn't be further from the truth. We keep first things first. We proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins to secure eternity to all who believe. Then in compassion like Jesus, we do what we can to meet those physical needs as well. And what is so ironic and yet so understandable with the spirit of the age is that throughout the ages it has always been Christians who were on the front line and in the vanguard and the most generous people as far as taking care of all those perceived needs around the world throughout as long as the church has existed. You check that with history. Not exactly known for telling the truth. Proclaim. Preach the good news.